I decided to do something that was so non-traditional. There's no manual for it. There's no book. There's no right or wrong way to do it. And as we go along, we find out what is okay for our family. And it doesn't really matter what other people have to say about them. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Flourish in the Foreign the award-winning podcast that celebrates, elevates, and affirms the voices and stories of Black women living and thriving abroad while exploring living abroad as a pathway to wellness. I'm your host, Christine Job, a Black American and Trinidadian woman based currently in Valencia, Spain. I am not only an award-winning podcaster, But I am a business strategist, and as a business strategist, I help Black women and women of color leverage their talents, their brilliance, their expertise into developing viable, sustainable, and impactful businesses, businesses in which they bet on themselves, they bet on their own dreams, and turn into assets for their own lives. These businesses are often used to then pursue thriving lives abroad. If you are like, hey, what's that all about? I want to learn more about that. You can definitely learn more about me, my endeavors. Get the Build a Business Abroad guide at christinejob.com. Now, I do have the Moving Abroad with Intention course, which now has a self-study version and also a live version. The self-study, you can join anytime. You can do the course anytime. The live version will only be offered sporadically, to be honest, And currently it is on offer right now. So if you're looking for some help about getting clear and confident and you want to take this next step abroad and do so with intention, because you're not just trying to go abroad, but you're trying to flourish, you're trying to sustain, you're trying to move abroad with some longevity, I highly recommend you join me in the Move Abroad with Intention course, but there'll be more details about that course at the end of this episode. Today's episode is part two of Motherhood Abroad. It is a really interesting compilation episode I put together for all of you, featuring the voices and the stories of the mothers I have interviewed for Flourish in the Foreign, sharing their perspectives on being a mother, evolving as a mother, and the effects of living abroad it has had not only on them, but also on their children. And as I've mentioned before, I think sometimes people who have maybe not gone abroad or maybe thinking about going abroad feel as if being a mother can be restrictive or limiting to living abroad in some kind of capacity. And I hope that through part one and also this episode, it has shown you that motherhood comes in so many different ways of of being. And I think these mothers have really owned what being a mother looks like for them. And I hope that encourages you all who are interested in being mothers or are mothers and who are moving or living abroad. Y'all are wonderful. (laughs) 
So without further ado, I'm going to let the mothers of Flourish in the Foreign tell you all about it. In season two, episode seven, Victoria shared why it was so important for her to raise her daughter in Italy. I would say relocated to Italy in 2014, and I gave birth to my daughter in 2016. And so I was living and growing and working here and just getting my life together in Italy and sort of rebuilding my business and everything. And it was during a a holiday visit in the States that I met the father of my daughter and I discovered in early 2016 that I was pregnant. And so I had some really big decisions to make. And I knew for certain I had these very specific reasons why I didn't want to live in the United States. And I also had a vision for my family that didn't include the United States. And so I'm in Italy alone and I had to make some big decisions about if I would go back because that's where my mother is, that's where my support would be, that's where her father is, or if I would stay in Italy. And I would say for a hot second, I was really close to going back because I was just scared. As a new mother, it was an unexpected uh, pregnancy. And so as a new mother, I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. And I especially don't know what I'm doing as an entrepreneur. Do I need to just go get a regular job and just do the nine to five so I can take care of my kid? And I really had to do a lot of soul searching because Of course, I want to provide for my kid. I want the best for my kid. I don't want to be selfish. I don't want to just think about me. I want to think about the whole family. And I want to think about how all of that will impact her. And I teetered. I was on a seesaw. I was going back and forth like, what do I do? And I remembered my childhood growing up. And I knew absolutely without a doubt what I would not allow her to go through. And those were all sort of family logistical things and home life, the structuring of home life, the construct of family life and those sorts of things. So having a good home, a safe home, a good school, family connections, having food on the table, having healthy options, having access to health care. I, I had this vision, though, of a different type of happiness. And it wasn't just those things. It really was rooted and based in freedom of identity freedom of self in a way that I really did not think was possible for her to achieve in the United States. And so even when I was strongly considering closing the doors to my business, because I'm like entrepreneurship and a business is a baby. It is a kid. It's something that you have to nurture and nourish every day. And it's up to you. It's not up to anybody else. And so I didn't know if I would be able to do that and have a newborn. I hadn't put together a resume like in never. <laughs> so I was figuring how, out how to put my resume together and who to send it to so I could just get a job and get healthcare benefits and get this and get that and just kind of 
beyond just willingly get on the hamster wheel. Part of me was like, that is not who you are. But I didn't know what else to do. And again, I didn't want to be selfish and I didn't want to, I'm trying to put her first. That was my thinking. But I did have like a coming to myself moment where I was like, if I do this, if I give up who I am, And the life that I've already started creating in Italy and being an entrepreneur and being a writer and basing my life off of creativity and identity and femininity and just this this real subtle but powerful power of, of womanhood and, like I said, femininity, if I give that up for the sake of quote unquote stability with a nine to five and benefits, quote unquote benefits, number one, I'm going to be a shell of a person. I'm going to be a shell of a mother. I don't want that for her. I thought about my own mother and the fact that once I became much, much older, I started asking my dad and asking my mom who she was before she was a mother. And she was this fascinating person. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what what happened? And she's like, well, y'all happened. And I get that. You do have to sacrifice a lot of yourself to become a parent, but you don't have to give up who you are. And I felt like being who I am would be such a contribution to her growing up to be whoever she is going to be. I made the very difficult decision to remain in Italy because I didn't and I don't want my kid to grow up in the type of racial society that is the United States. She's five years old today, but she very much knows about that society and uh, culture. I teach her about it. There is Black presence throughout our home and throughout the things that we listen to and watch and the books that we have and the things that are on my walls and and things like that. So I, I, I knew that it would be a sacrifice to sort of separate her from what Black culture we do have in the United States, in my family, my community, and, and my culture. But I think you can take your culture with you wherever you go. And so that's what I've tried to do. But she was born here. She was born in Italy. She's very much Italian. (laughs) I mean, both of her parents are American, but she's very much Italian. She speaks three languages. She goes to an Italian school. And all that she knows is Italy. And she understands that she's a little Black girl. She understands why her hair is different. But she also understands a type of humanity that I didn't understand and that I didn't have access to and that I didn't see when I was a little girl growing up in Memphis, Tennessee. She revels in being seen and being called beautiful, very common. If you're a woman, girl, it's Chow Bella. It's Chow Bella, 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 Bella. And so she's heard this since she was born and she hears it today and that people look at you and acknowledge you and and comment on your beauty and your skin and your hair, not threatened by it. They actually celebrate it. And she's gone to the United States She didn't really know how to say it, but she's kind of looked up at me like, how come nobody's talking to me? You know, like if we're standing in the line at the airport or at a restaurant, nobody looks at you. Nobody acknowledges you. Not in a conceited way, but just in a human way. 
And so it's really through her that I have vicariously started to sort of undo and unravel a lot of the complex constructs in my own mind about being seen and being wanted and sought after and loved and and almost requiring that. I grew up like, I hope they see me. And she's like, no, they need to see me or we need to go. She's a character in and of herself. And she very independent, very, very intelligent little girl, but she definitely has taught me a lot. I'm her mother and I'm teaching her a lot, but because I think she's here and she's born in an environment like this, she's teaching me a lot, really a lot that I need to unlearn. And that's led to so many wonderful things. In season one, episode 55, Gwen shared what her family and friends and her kids thought about her deciding to retire and move to Spain. I have the most loving family and friends that you will ever meet. And they have never, even when they were little, and I used to move them around the country because I get bored or I'm seeking new employment or better opportunities, they never complained. They never said, no, no, we don't want to go. And they never gave me any trouble. They just packed up everything and we went. So when they're grown and living in their own environments, it it was nothing for me to do. And one of the things that um, I discussed with them was how I felt unnecessary. You know, what do you do after everything you've done all your life? It's no more. It's like the rug is pulled out from underneath of you unless you're working. What is there for you to do? Because in life, women are told this is your responsibility, family, home. And even though we have to work, people don't allow us to be more than mother and wife. It's a societal thing. So they said, mom, you don't speak Spanish. That was the first thing they told me. How are you going to go to Spain and you don't speak Spanish? And I said to my youngest daughter, because she's the one, I said to my youngest daughter, well, I know how to smile and I'm female. I think I can get along very well in any country because all you have to do is be friendly and look like you're trying. And I did. And it was very easy for me. In season one, episode 45, Star shared with me what her day to day is like with her daughter in Budapest. Every district in Budapest has several playgrounds, as well as outdoor space where you can easily access. Across the river from our window is Margaret Island, and it's an entire island of outdoor space. You can go to the singing fountain. There's a Japanese garden. There's several playgrounds. There's huge landscape. There's a water, there's a water park. There's things you can rent to have fun. And even during covid we were able to just go over there and do some social distancing and be outside, even living in the city life in these large apartment complexes on top of each other. We were able to escape from our flat and have some outdoor space, which was great. And so even just the commute in the morning, we're not hopping in a car and I'm dropping her off. Like she gets to ride her scooter to school because it's walking distance and 
she's like speaking several languages to different kids at school and going back and forth. So, and I absolutely love that Budapest as a whole is a family oriented city. It's literally like this morning, it was like 57 strollers <laughs> on the way to school, hustling and bustling and she being able to say hi to people that she knows. So definitely family oriented. She's having this like outdoor life, even though we live in a city, which I absolutely love. And I just don't know how much of that she would get commuting in a car from here to there and everywhere. So I love that. And I love that she gets, I get to baby wear. I get to do things I wouldn't do in America. I wouldn't be baby wearing my child on my back, like a backpack. And we're just hustling, bustling, you know, like going on a tram, going on a bus. Like it's fun. It's fun for me. In season one, episode 27, Morgan shared what it was like being pregnant and raising children in Kenya and Guinea and Uganda. And she also shared her inspiration for developing and publishing her children's books. I initially started looking for books that could kind of capture some of the experiences that my children were having like traveling, et cetera. And so the first book I wrote was called Escape from the Baggage Claim. It's available on Amazon, Kindle. But basically, whenever we would get to a destination, my daughter would always complain at how long it took to get our bags. And so I, I literally just wrote this really lighthearted children's story about the baggage claim. And one day when her bag didn't come out, she decided to go in and figure out what was going on. It was only then that she saw that there was a troll inside <laughs> that was holding her bag and she had to answer a series of questions to to be able yeah. to get her bag. So that was that was one. The most recent book that I published is called The Trip of Your Dreams and that's available also on Amazon. It's now at Barnes and Noble and Target as well. And basically that book was a sort of wanting to spur particularly African American children to want to see the world. I think as I mentioned, it was a little bit later in life that I got a passport, but I now have children who had a passport as young as one month old. <laughs> and so wanting to just put out there, these are the different opportunities for you to travel. And so this book actually follows uh, a girl who dreams about her perfect trip and sort of it takes her to all these different destinations, Sri Lanka, Turks and Caicos, Kenya, and allows her to sort of come up with what she wants to do. And her parents sort of encourage her as she goes along. In season one, episode 50, Lola describes what it's been like raising biracial children in Sweden. So this is actually something I did write about recently for the New York Times, <laughs> about what it's like to raise bi biracial children in Sweden. One of the privileges I had growing up was not being reminded every single day that I'm black, because being black has nothing to do with who I am as a person or my capabilities in life or what I, you know, what I do. And so that was the privilege I had. That's not the privilege my kids have, right? Because every day when they wake up, they go to school, they are reminded that they're different because they look different, they're brown. And, and so for me as a parent, what I do is, well, they may not have that privilege that I had, but what I can do as a parent is not only educate them, but then remove kids or friends that try to keep pointing out just how different they are, right? So if they are friends that are saying kind of maybe racist things or, or saying kind of insinuating, those friends slowly get 
are slowly weeded out of their lives because what I want my kids to grow up with is a strong sense of self that's not tied to just how they look because they're going to still meet racism once, once they get older. They're going to still meet all this stuff, but they don't need to be meeting it at a young age. So that's what I do as a parent is I try to remove any kind of influence that tries to point out to them in a negative way that they're different because then they are going to deal with that as teenagers, but I want them to deal with that as teenagers with a strong sense of self, which is what I had because I didn't, I, that wasn't thrown in my face every single day. So that's kind of the difference. And that's kind of how I'm raising my kids. They are already very strong and, and they have questions, they know about racism, they know all about that, but, but also they approach it in a, in a very intelligent way as well. And so that's how we, I'm, I'm raising them so that they have a strong sense of self. And then once they do meet it, then they approach it with, with just with a lot more confidence. As many of you already know, but those of you that are new, welcome. Flourish in the Foreign is a labor of love, but labor nonetheless it is an award-winning podcast, but it is an indie podcast. There's no studio backing this podcast up. It is a solo podcast. That means there ain't nobody else doing this work except for me. So if you love this podcast to tell us the stories of Black women who are living and thriving abroad, please consider supporting this podcast. You can do so by going to buymeacoffee.com slash flourishforeign. And buy me a coffee. Thank you very much. You could also take a peek at the wish list. If you're interested at all at producing a podcast, take a look at my wish list. That's some of the stuff that you may need when you become a little bit more advanced podcaster. That's a really good look at the budget of how much it costs to produce a podcast like Flourish in the Foreign. Anything that you contribute, honestly, is just greatly appreciated. I do appreciate you all so much. Now, make sure that you're subscribed to the podcast. It really is important to be physically or virtually subscribed to the podcast. Also, please make sure that you have rated the podcast five stars. You have left a review telling everyone in the world, and me especially, why you like Flourish in the Foreign. It's so important for discoverability. It's so important for visibility. And also, it just makes my heart all warm and fuzzy. So thank you so much for doing that. And then, of course, please support the podcast by sharing the podcast. Don't gatekeep Flourish in the Foreign. Don't do that. Other people deserve to know about Flourish in the Foreign. Be generous and give the gift of Flourish in the Foreign. You know, it's given you so much. Give, give to other people. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> all right. Thank you all so much for supporting the podcast. I really do appreciate it. In season one, episode 57, Juanita shared her family's experience being the international expat Ingrams from the UK to Taiwan and now Singapore. And she shared with me her kids' experiences studying and living abroad. Yeah, I think it's been a great experience for them. Definitely has. And it's interesting because on the show, they start out, we started rolling cameras again in 2018 and debuted in 2020. 
So the kids that you see on the show have grown by three years and (laughs) that growth is beautiful to watch. Definitely being a third culture kid, because this is their third continent, third country. Singapore will be their fourth country that they've lived in. I just visited. They visited like 27 countries. And so to see them see the world and see the world through their eyes and then to see them grow in a way that I certainly didn't have the opportunity. I think the world is small to them. I asked my daughter not too long ago, where do you feel like you're from? Because for me as an African-American, people ask me, where are you from? I'm quick to say, oh, I'm, I'm from Chattanooga, Tennessee. I still go on class reunion trips with my high school classmates. I'm very close to Chattanooga. I, I still own businesses there and houses there and stuff. It's, I'm very, very connected to where I'm from. With third culture kids, it's been interesting to see their maturation of where they feel rooted. When we moved back from London to Indiana, my son had a full British accent. That was his first accent. He never had an American accent uh, because he was learning to speak. We were living in the UK. He was so young. And when I told him that he was from, I I took him to the pediatrician's office. He was about five, almost six. And we were walking in the hospital and, and I said, yeah, KJ, this is where you were born here. And he stopped and looked at me and he was like, really, mommy? Yeah. You know, he just kind of looked around like, oh my gosh. He was like, really, in this, in this location? And I'm like, yes, KJ. And he was like, so I'm, I'm not British. And I'm like, no, I've been trying to tell you for the longest time and explain your nationality that you are American. But I asked my daughter recently, where do you feel like you are from? And she said, I feel like I'm from everywhere. I feel like I am just as much from the UK as I am from the US. I don't really remember being in the US before the UK, but I know that I was there. I feel connected to Taiwan because this is where she, my daughter's 13 now. So she went through her preteen years and into her teenage years right here in Asia and feels very much connected. They don't see uh, race the same although they do experience issues of race in similar ways. There are a lot of microaggressions that occur in a lot of Asian countries, and Taiwan is no different, that they certainly do experience. But at the same time, they've grown up in this freedom of identity and being able to really come into their own. And it is a benefit and a blessing. I do not worry about my daughter going to the mall and worrying whether or not a security guard is going to, you know, draw a gun on her or whether or not the police are going to mishandle her. I don't have that fear. And that's not to say that she won't experience being followed in the store or someone uh, falsely accusing her of something, but she's not going to die. I don't have that fear and neither does she and neither does my son. That has been refreshing and a blessing. We talked about that. I think it was episode 12, a scene that I'm very proud of. My husband and another gentleman here who's African-American and was from Alabama, California, former NBA player, Taiwanese NBA player, but he's black and is a full Taiwanese citizen now, gave up his U.S. citizenship. But he and my husband had this beautiful conversation as black men about how they felt safer outside of the U.S. than at home, especially right now. And I think that's a reality for children as well. It's been beautiful to watch them pick up extra languages. My son is becoming fluent in Mandarin. My daughter has chosen uh, Spanish, but she's also picked up Mandarin and Spanish. She'll concentrate on Spanish when we move to Singapore. 
but to see them pick up another language and just to see them experience cultures and friends from different cultures in various places. They have friends all over the world. They still keep in contact with their friends and they went to school with them in London and they're everywhere from Switzerland to Portugal right now to Brazil. And this is their network. This is their squad, if you will. That's been beautiful to watch. It's been hard and I have to let go of the the upbringing that I had. I, I had a Zoom recently on my 25th high school reunion and I looked on the Zoom and most of the faces on there I had known since I was two years old, three years old, elementary school, middle school. I'd known these people my entire life. Some of them, even we even went to college together. Like it was it's that kind of network and that kind of extended family that sometimes I worry if they're going to have that, but they have something else that is different and that's beautiful. And I fully know that one day they'll be, oh, I'm going to New Zealand to this person's wedding that I've known since middle school. And that's their reality, their world. So it's been beautiful to watch. It's interesting in season two where we're filming right now, certain life skills, however, I needed to convey to them because, you know, I grew up in a time every Saturday, my mom would turn on Luther Vandross' vinyl album and Howlin' Oates. And by the time she got to Whitney Houston, all the chores need to be done. So my sister would vacuum, I would mop. Somebody would end us, somebody would Windex. And that was our Saturday mornings. They've never had that. They don't know anything. They don't know about their life. They've always had helpers and housekeepers and all that. And then during this lockdown, when our, our helpers and housekeepers weren't coming, I noticed, I was like, I don't think my kids know how to wash clothes. And, and that's all on me. So certain life skills that you have to be intentional about because you're living in a particular setting that you have to make sure that you give them the life skills to know that helpers are not going to always be there to do their laundry. And that that's totally on me not on them. And so those are the type of things that I'm cognizant of now that Kinsley's 13 and she only has like five years left and she should go off to college knowing how to do her own laundry. That is the goal. So, (laughs) but it's been great. It really has been great. So during the first season of the TV show, we see Juanita and her husband go through an ordeal, really, to register their kids in school in Taiwan before they even arrive. Due to a rogue teacher recommendation, so I asked Juanita to really speak more about finding a school abroad for her children, and as they now move to Singapore, what that process has been like trying to register them in international schools in Singapore. You see in the show the challenges we had in getting into the American schools here in Taiwan. I think internationally, the international school experience is different for every country. And we talked about that in the show, and we talk about that even more so. I do an eight-part series called Trailing Spouses that's on um, YouTube right now with another friend, uh, trailing spouse mom, who's a diplomat from an African country here. And her child is also in an international school. And we talk about the difference in education and the pursuit of education and trying to pick a school that's that's uh, right for your child. And sometimes you don't really have a lot of options when you move abroad and there's a different approach. So what my experience was in the UK, especially in London, you're registering your kids. I mean, yes, you're applying, but it's more of a registration. Asia and, and there's a educational lawyer that was on the show that talked about just how hard it is to get your children into 
international and American schools on the Asian continent, it is a different approach. It's a different process. You are applying to school. I felt like I was launching my kids to college. You know, it was it's really an application process and it's not guaranteed. There's sometimes there are space accommodation issues. And so we tried to pick a school when we approached this with and learning from our experiences from London versus Taiwan. I approached Singapore much differently. I didn't leave room for the ambiguous teacher recommendation. I had strong conversations with people beforehand, like, look, in case you've never done a recommendation for a child that's going into another Asian country, which they had, because I think that makes a big difference as well. We were coming from Indiana to Taiwan, and there's a difference. They don't understand what these recommendations are really like. And so you put something in there that's negative because you're having a moment. You could really jeopardize that child's trajectory into school. But this time around going into Singapore, my kids did get into both of the top two international American schools in Singapore. We had our pick this time of options. And so they're already accepted. They're there. And when we looked at the two different schools, we honestly looked at their diversity numbers. And Singapore really is like the London of Asia is what people say. It's very diverse. There are schools there that had a lot of diversity and some that didn't. And we looked at curriculum. We looked at where kids go on to matriculate to after they leave the school. But really looking at the balanced experience that they're going to have in the environment and making sure that they're not the only ones of color there. So there's a less likelihood of unconscious bias. That's not to say that it won't exist. If their existence in children that look like them have been normalized because there are more of them. That played a big, significant uh, factor in our decision this time around. And I think we owe it to our kids to give them that experience, that they are happy and supported and that their existence has been normalized prior to them getting there. So that was a big factor in what we use to make a decision and the strength of the curriculum. We want them to be prepared to enter into whatever school that they will go on to after here, after this assignment will probably be in the New Jersey, New York area. And you just want your kids to be prepared. So that was that played a heavy part in our decision making. You see a lot of that in season two. In season one, episode 42, Angie decided to leave Hawaii and take her kids around the world. They were in various places around Southeast Asia, and then they landed in Vietnam. Angie shared her children's experiences abroad and also why she decided to world school her children. My kids, actually, when I told them, they they were young. So they didn't really fully understand, but they were, they were for it. They were like, okay, we're, you know, we're going, we're going to have these wonderful adventures. You know, I was showing them pictures of some of the places that we were going to go. And I let them pick, you know, a couple of things that they would want to do. They were really excited. They were really excited a lot because they weren't going to have to go to school anymore. So that, (laughs) that was a, a big enticement for them. And then... My mom and my daughter are are quite close. So my daughter was a bit, I mean, as as concerned as she could be in her six-year-old brain that she wasn't going to get to see grandma every day anymore. But other than that, it was pretty, it was a pretty smooth transition. And oh, I got to take that back because 
My daughter is also very particular about her stuff. So when we were leaving and we had to get rid of basically everything, she was not too happy about that. Because when we left, we left only with a carry-on suitcase each. So we did not take anything with us, really. The plan was for us to travel pretty consistently for a while. And I just didn't want to have to you know, tote all of their things and all of my things and pay for all these baggage fees and all of that. So getting her down to a carry-on was a bit of a chore, but um, but we did it. And we got on the plane and everything was fine. When we left, I did feel this sort of camaraderie with my kids that I'd never felt before. It very much did feel like, you know, we were embarking on this journey together. And no matter what happened along the way, this was going to bring us so much closer. And we got off and in Bali and it was just kind of like amazing. From I mean, It was just like kind of really good from the start. And we went right off into, you know, new experiences, just walking around the neighborhoods there where we stayed. It was just constant newness, constantly something we'd never seen or smelled or tasted or heard before and exploring that together in a way that adults don't often get to do with children. For for the most part, it's it's the children experiencing everything new and learning how to do all of these things. And so in in this way it was it was like we all were children together. And the first month we woke up when we felt like waking up. We ate where we wanted to. We just kind of let the day form itself. We didn't make a lot of plans. We didn't talk about school at all. And there was this sort of decompression period where it was learning how to be okay without all of the sort of American hustle, hustle, hustle all the time that we accepted as normal life. And now suddenly we had this completely different experience and it was okay to not be needing to do something at every every minute of every day. So when Angie decided to travel around the world with her kids, she decided to really buck the quote-unquote traditional system or method of education for her children. And as an educator, she decided to embark on something that's called world schooling or unschooling. So I asked her to explain more about what that philosophy and methodology is and how she put it into practice with her own children. So world schooling or unschooling, depending on how mobile you are, is basically not school. So my kids learned how to learn through their entire day-to-day. Traditional school teaches kids that they only learn while they're in this building and they only learn from teachers. And it makes children expect to be spoon-fed material. It makes them learn something just for a test oftentimes. And it's not usually taught in practicality. So they, they're unable a lot of times to transfer that information to real-world application. On the contrary, world schooling or unschooling teaches kids that everything is a learning experience and a learning opportunity. Maybe the easiest way that I can describe it is 
my kids learned how adults learn. When you want to know something or you want to find something out, you go and research it. You go and talk to an expert. You you know find someone who's doing that already, and you learn from them. You take a class. You take a course. You know you you research that information and you find it out. And so that's what my kids did. If there was something that they were interested in, then we researched it and and we figured out that information. For example, my son is really into animals. So every time we would go somewhere new, we would always have a sort of animal adventure. We did rescue sanctuary places or something like that. And I would pay a little bit of extra money to have the expert guide us through the thing where the kids could ask questions. There was always an objective for the day. Like they would have to learn three new facts, or they would have to show their learning in some way. And they had options on how they could do that. So they could write it, they could make a video, they could they could make up a play or a song, or they could draw a picture about it. But in some way, they had to show whatever they learned for that day. And in that way, they retained the information a lot more. It really taught them that they had the power over their education, that they could take ownership and responsibility of the knowledge that they wanted to learn. It taught them that we are learning all the time. Oftentimes when we would be in, in say, for example, the animal rescue place or whatever, the information that they would read on, say, those placards or whatever, where it gives all the information for the animals, that's pretty high level stuff. It's not, that's not, you know, your normal Dr. Seuss reading that a six-year-old would be doing. And if they could read that information and retain it and understand it, then, you know, how is that any different than what they would have learned by reading a fact sitting at a desk in a school? And in this way, it becomes more real to them. You can read about whatever in a book, but when you get to stand in front of that thing or that animal or that creature and see their behavior and see how and smell it and you know experience it in that way then it's a completely different experience i remember one thing that happened when we were in thailand my mom had traveled to thailand and she went to ride the elephant and i was like absolutely not we're not riding the elephants it's not you know great for the animals and that and my son really really wanted to do it and so we went to we went to this waterfall park and they just so happened to have the elephants there. And so he went over and he looked at the elephants and they just looked so sad and they were in these very small tiny pins and they were chained and he stood and looked at them for a while and then he was just like that that's horrible mom why are they doing that to those animals and I you know explained him this is what riding the elephants is this is what it looks like. And so after that, he didn't want to ride the elephants. And every time he would see or hear somebody wanting to do that, he would go off and explain to them why it was what's not good for the elephants. And this is what happens. And and they're very sad and they don't get to be with their mommies and they take the babies away. And so it became a very visceral experience for him. Not only did he research more about those things, but he became somewhat of a little activist because he shared that information in a very real way to other people. So they enjoyed the travel the most. And I don't know, fortunately or unfortunately, my kids have 
kind of expensive taste. So we did get to stay in some five-star places and stuff that they loved that sort of thing. And they were okay staying in the in the villages and things as well. They had fun and and got to have different experiences. They loved the travel part of it. When we got to Vietnam, after a while, we kind of almost settled back into the same kind of pattern, work, home, mom's always tired, mom's always gone kind of thing. So that it became too much. The downside of having my kids out here by myself was I didn't have a big support system. And so if I was really stressed out or if I had a a lot going on or if, you know, bills needed to be paid and, and whatever, everything fell on my shoulders. And they had a nanny. I did have help, but it's not the same as, you know, when you have your family around to help take care and pick up the slack a bit. So that was part of the reason for them going back. A huge part of the reason for them going back, though, was that their dad came back into the picture. And a lot of families can relate to the fact that fathers are absent sometimes. And I don't I don't know about a lot of other people, but I do wish that if there was some way for my dad to come back and have redemption and end up being a good dad and being, you know, that counterpart to my mom, whether they were together or not. I would have loved that as a kid. And I know that, you know, my brothers and cousins and things like that, they also, a lot of them don't have great relationships with their fathers either. So for him to come back in the picture and him to come back in a healthy way, and we were able to reconcile our differences to give my kids the opportunity to rebuild that relationship with their father while they were still young was really important to me. And that was the major motivation for them going back. And it's been hard. I had my kids with me every single day for 11 years. And so there's been a bit of, I'd say, there's there's a bit of shame with having this non-traditional, you know, things set up the way that it is. My family has not been very supportive at all of the situation. There's been a bit of guilt with, you know, not being the traditional mom in that sense. But there's been a lot of growth as well. And there's been a lot of acceptance. And there's been the, the relationship between me and my kid's dad now is so much more healthy and just all around better for for all of us, really. And so we just, we kind of define a new, we had to find a new normal, a new what is okay for us. And I think that's really been the, the theme of the whole journey is that I decided to do something that was so non-traditional. There's no manual for it. There's no book. There's no right or wrong way to do it. And as we go along, we find out what is okay for our family And it doesn't really matter what other people have to say about them. In season two, episode two, Nafisa shares how she navigates third culture parenting. I mean, long story short is you make your own rules. (laughs) Thankfully, when you're in a third culture family, to, to many, to its credit or to its discredit, the reality of it is that you're kind of isolated you don't have to play by anybody's rules. No, no grandparents are going to come over and be like, cover that baby up or don't feed that baby this or why haven't you done that? Like you don't have that. You, you have what you adopt and you have what you accept and you do away with what you don't. And so I would say 
that I tell moms all the time that your motherhood starts the minute you find out that you are expecting. It doesn't start the moment that they're born. So some of those changes that you make when you're nesting, some of those things that you do to prepare, the things that make you feel safe, those are the things you have to bring into your parenting, regardless of how old your child is and how independent your child might might feel. Your intuition often will tell you what you need to do to be in preparation for them. And so I feel like for me, it was very powerful very early on. Like I knew that I didn't want a hospital birth. I I could I could taste it. I just knew I didn't want a hospital birth. And I tried to make it work and, and then decided it just wasn't the option for me. And I felt so validated and so empowered by not giving birth at a hospital and choosing home birth that I think that really carried in for me. So first things first, I would say is your birthing experience is super important. And I think a lot of women have normalized birthing trauma, whether that be being forced to have cesareans or not understanding what their doctors are saying or being told that their body can't handle the pain, all these other things. I think there's a lot of birthing trauma that we carry into how we raise our kids that I think is extremely, extremely important that Black women women in particular don't underestimate and don't normalize because it is possible to have a happy birth. It is possible to have an empowered experience. And if, you know, if for some reason you didn't have that, there are ways to repair it. I did a number of courses with a woman named Rachelle Selica, I believe, and she runs a, a center called Innate Traditions. And she does a lot around repair and birthing trauma. And I think that's a really important thing to, to address if that ever happened to you. But I think it's common for people to have that experience abroad because there's a lot that maybe the rules are different or you can't have people in the room or you can't do the things you normally want to do. You got to stay in the bed. Certain things might have, might have agency might've been taken from you that I think is important to get. So I would, I would start there. Raising third culture kids, I think is extremely fun. A lot of times they don't, they teach you more than you realize. Like my son is correcting my Spanish every day and I'm like, okay, I've been speaking Spanish for 25 years. Why are you correcting me? But there's a lot of like co-learning that happens when you are a parent of a third culture kid. And I think you have to be amenable to being taught as much as you're amenable to teaching. And that that doesn't always have to be a full-time job. We have we do have a nanny, we have a couple of teachers, we create a community around our kids, even though we don't have family who's doing that. We do create that community that's steady and, and consistent for them. And people that we talk to like family, like the, the woman who's with them every day, like her name, you know, we call her Tia. Like she's like your auntie. Like I'm not gonna have you calling her by her first name. Like my family's from the South, that's not okay. It's Mr. or Miss Auntie or Uncle. So some of those things you bring in. And and I think you have to be open to the fact that some of the things that you didn't think you cared about, you're going to care about. I think that happens for any parent. Like there are things that you didn't expect would matter to you, but they do. Like for me, I, I, I never dinner, like sitting down, but now I'm realizing like, I want, I want to do that with my kids. I want to have this time where I sit down and talk to them and have undivided attention to provide to them and talking with them. Like those types of things that might seem like super antiquated when you're sort of young and running around all of the places you don't do that anymore because you go out to restaurants i think when you have kids some of those things change and last would be your relationship with your parents i think becoming a parent yourself can often offer a lot of closure and forgiveness around the relationships that you have with your own parents and you realize how much they didn't know like you realize how much they were just trying their best and sometimes they didn't get it and i think there's a lot of empathy that that really comes 
that really comes with that. So I think anybody who's embarking on an experience of, of parenting while living abroad just really has to know that you can create a community, even if it's not by your family. You can reestablish connections with your family should you so choose and should that make sense and be healthy for you. But also that you kind of do get to have a little bit of the both best of both worlds. You get to be a bit of a rebel. You get to be a real, little bit of a thinker out of the box when it comes to your health care and the ways that your issues that are coming up in your family. There are times when I will go to a Peruvian doctor and there are other times when I'm like, no, I'm going to call my doctor in the States just because I do have that ability. And, and I think for me, that's important. I don't want I don't want to have my experience abroad mean that I've got fewer choices. I think it should always mean that you have more choices. And I think some people perhaps activate that or maybe close that down when they have kids. But it's just important to know that you always do have these like international resources to help you parent. And it might be through technology or other tools, but they are there and they're they're meant for you to use them. The children's books, the children's books kind of started off as a fluke. Again, like I said, I was just like so frustrated. So the way most bilingualism works is that one parent has to consistently speak one language and another parent speaks the other So or caregiver. So the, the child has to know that whenever they talk to person X, they're going to speak this language. And whenever they talk to person Y, they're going to speak another language. And at their age, they don't even know they're two different languages. They just know that they have to use certain words when they talk to one person or another. So my husband and I were super committed to this. We were like, this is happening for our kids. We don't care how long it takes. And once our kids got a little bit older, my son got a little bit older, he would ask us to read bedtime stories to him, of course. And the books that we were reading in Portuguese, they were just so heavy. It was like very heavy Black history stories. Like they were well beyond his his reading level. And they also were about references, of course, that he didn't really know. Like, I mean, it's kind of like having a foreign kid read a book about Thurgood Marshall to go to bed. It's just like, it's too heavy. And and so we realized that wasn't a good option. And then we started to find children's books, but then the stories would either, most of the American stories were really simple, rhyming stories, very whatever. But you'd have to buy two books. Like we'd have to buy the book in Portuguese and the book in English for both of us to read the book. So often my son would be like, mama, I want, I want you to read the story daddy read. And I was like, well, I don't have that book in English. That's a daddy book. I can't read that book. And similarly with my husband, he'd be like, dad, can you translate this book into Portuguese? And my husband in his poor, poor heart, he would actually try to do it. And I was like, why are you trying to do this? Like, just tell him no. But he's like, no, it's important for him to learn this vocabulary in Portuguese too. Like he doesn't know how to say some of these things outside of English. And if we don't give him a Portuguese translation, he'll never know what those words mean. So uh, I went in the search of bilingual books and there are not that many, but the ones that do exist at this age group, there's one series by Shelley Admont, who I absolutely love. Her work is amazing. It's on Amazon. It has been a staple in our house. Really simple books, like really, really simple books that are translated into multiple languages. And we can get the side by side in English and in Spanish or English and Portuguese. And my kids loved it. Cool. But those characters are bunnies. <laughs> They're all bunnies. And when we went to Portugal, we went to Spain, we went to, I've been to Brazil, like the bilingual books often don't have black kids or even brown kids for that matter. And even in Spanish, like most people will be like, oh, what about the books by Dora or that kind of thing? A lot of times there are Spanish words in a larger English narrative. It's not the book written in Spanish. I long story short is I found some freelancers who would who would pull together 
the illustrations for me. Um, a great illustrator out of California took the job and I did the writing myself. So I just came up with this narrative. It started forever ago, way before COVID. So the story is about a kid going to the doctor's office to get a shot and realizing how brave they are. But it's even more relevant now. And I started that story and the concept behind the book, I just sent out to a few different friends. They gave me feedback. They, they read it to their kids and I used their feedback to simplify the story even more. And what makes these books unique, the title of it is Xavier the Superhero. So if you go on Amazon, it's available now in ebook version and in print version, both in Spanish and English. But the, the thing that's really unique about it is just how simple it is. It's a, it's a story that rhymes in both languages, which apparently is like this amazing feat that everybody's like, oh my God, how are you able to do that? I was like, it's not that hard <laughs> uh, when it's a kid's story and it's so simple. It's it's actually not that complicated. But again, I have this facility with languages and I, I speak them. I've been speaking Portuguese for over 15 years now. English, I mean, English I grew up with and Spanish for over 25 years. So I, I know how to do this stuff. And so it felt really like a gift that I could give my kids, but that also I could give to a lot of other people who may not even know that they need this. I think... Because I moved so much, I knew I needed it. My kids were asking for it and I needed to provide it to them. But I, I could just imagine, and I've talked to so many people who are like, they're trying to teach their kids a heritage language. So maybe their grandma speaks a language that the mom or the dad don't speak, but they're trying to teach their kid. And in so many ways, books like this are really educational for adults too, because they didn't know how to say something this way, or they or they speak a language, but they never read a language. So they know how to say all the words, but they had never seen those words written down. And so in many ways, I find that other families who have used this and who have bought this, it's really enjoyable for the adults too, because they've never seen something presented so simply, so easily, and so universally, but written in both languages. And the main character is Black, but there are other characters of color throughout the book. And it's just a really, in my mind, it's it's a gift that I say that I gave my kids, but that they gave me. I don't think I ever would have needed to produce something like this were, were I not in the situation of motherhood abroad. I never would have thought that, oh my God, somebody could need this, but I did. And I'm sure there are other families that do as well. Thank you all so much for listening to part two of Motherhood Abroad here on Flourish in the Foreign. If you have not checked out part one of Motherhood Abroad, go ahead and listen to that episode. Let me know what you thought about this episode. If you agree, disagree, or if you want to hear more episodes like this, you can slide into my DMs. You can reply to any of the emails that I send out. And be sure to support Flourish in the Foreign by going to buymeacoffee.com slash Flourish Foreign, buy me a coffee or purchasing an item off the podcast wish list. Make sure that you're subscribed to the podcast on whatever platform that you listen to. I appreciate that. Make sure that you've rated the podcast five stars. You've left a review. Super duper important. And also, please do share this podcast. It means so much to me when you guys do that. All right. So what is Move Abroad with Intention course? Well, there are two versions of the course. There is a self-study course and then there is a live version course. Okay. 
The self-study course is a five-week self-study course with pre-recorded material and curriculum that you'll have access immediately. So once you purchase the course, you have that material and you will be walked through crafting your unique vision of a life well-lived abroad to country selection, to employment and money management, preparing to leave arriving and landing, making community, and preparing to stay long-term and repatriating. It is an all-encompassing five-week course with a complimentary move abroad intention guide, which I believe is just essential and is really foundational of the course. Now, if you're interested in the live version of the move abroad intention course, listen up. So the live version of this course is not available year round. It will only be available certain times of the year. And if you're interested in it, I highly suggest you be signed up for the Flourish the Four newsletter because that's when I will be letting everyone know when the live course is available for sign up. So the difference between the self-course and the live course is that this is a live course, right? It is going to be with me. It is five weeks of live discussion with me and the rest of the cohort. You still have access to the pre-recorded curriculum. You would still have access to the community. So you get to make friends and do all those things. And of course, you'll still be invited to the monthly office hours. The major difference is that if you are looking for some accountability, and if you want to chat with me live on a weekly basis for five weeks, this is the version for you. The truth is, is that moving abroad is a hassle. It just is. I know that a lot of people don't want to hear that, but I know that a lot of people, maybe you included, also have a deep fear of failing abroad, meaning you move abroad, you hate it, you don't make friends, you go broke, you have to come home with your tail between your legs. And moving abroad with intention course will help you build that foundation for a sustainable sustainable move abroad. At the end of this course, if you do the homework, you have a thick binder of research uniquely crafted for you and your life that will be the guiding star for you in this move abroad. Now, if this sounds like something you're interested in, I encourage you to sign up for Move Abroad with Intention course, either self-study or live version now. I hope to see you soon. This is the final episode of season two of Flourish in the Foreign. Thank you all so much for rocking with me this season. I just got to be honest, life is lifing. And, you know, my living abroad journey is an exploration of wellness for sure. But it's also an exploration of me just being myself, being soft and gentle with myself. So at first, you know, the episodes were a little sporadic. And I appreciate your patience for this season. I'm feeling great and amazing. And I feel really excited to bring you guys the next season of this podcast. So thank you so much for your patience. Thank you so much for your love and support because in those sporadic times, a lot of you guys just reached out to be like, we love you, take your time, can't wait to hear the podcast. And you know what? That just feels so nice to hear, you know? Thank you. Thank you for your kind words. Thank you for supporting this here podcast. And I know you're going to really enjoy what I have up next for you. A little surprise, a little, a little something extra just for y'all. All right? 
As always, thank you to Zachary Higgs who produced the music of this podcast. And remember, it is not about moving abroad. It is not about being abroad. It's about flourishing abroad. So go abroad and cultivate a life well lived. See y'all next season. Bye.